Well, good morning and Happy New Year. I am really glad that you could join us this morning. There's really no better way that I could think of ushering the new year than spending some time in God's Word with God's people. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to do that this morning. And I really do pray, I've been praying all week, that this time would be a blessing to you um, as you give it to the Lord. Uh, new year means new beginnings, and that's just what we're going to be doing this morning as we start a brand new sermon series. Uh, we're kicking off on the Holy Spirit. It's called The Holy Spirit. Uh, we ran out of some creative juices at the end of the year, so this, this is it. Um, so for the next uh, five Sundays, we're going to be looking at different texts, uh, texts throughout the Bible to help us answer some key questions that, that I tend to hear a lot as a pastor like who is the Holy Spirit, uh, what does he do, um, how does he relate to the Father and the Son, uh, the, the two other parts of the triune God, um, how does he relate to us, uh, th- those of us who are Christians and those of us who are not Christians, um, and, and, and does that relationship look different? And those are some of the big questions we'll be tackling, but there are plenty of other nuanced questions that I get asked all the time. Like, like why is the Holy Spirit referred to as a person and, and a man? What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Should people who are already Christians pray to be filled with the Spirit? Does the Holy Spirit give us Christians some supernatural abilities and powers? Does the Holy Spirit affect people now uh, in the same way that they, that they were affected in the Old Testament? Um, do we pray to the Holy Spirit? What does it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit? Why is the Holy Spirit called the Holy Ghost? Does he haunt people? Like, these are genuine questions that I get asked quite a bit. And so these and other questions uh, are mostly going to be answered. Um, But really, here's our hope for January, that we would all have a better understanding of the Holy Spirit uh, based on how he is explained and talked about to us in God's Word. Now, it's not going to be an exhaustive study, but it will be a great starting point, uh, and we'll be able to recommend other resources for further study uh, as we go about um, the series. So, Alden mentioned this in his prayer, but it is the unfortunate reality that the Holy Spirit gets the least talking time in our church. This is not something that's intentional, as if we don't like the Holy Spirit. That's just not true. Uh, Some of it is very practical, since passages on God the Father and God the Son are much, much, much more numerous uh, than than, um, God the Holy Spirit. Uh, But the elders and I think that there is a bit of a deficiency in our church's understanding of the Holy Spirit, which if you have a deficiency in your understanding of the Holy Spirit, um, it naturally leads us to uh, lacking an appreciation for who the Holy Spirit is and what he does in our lives. And I think that leads us to a decrease in our reliance on the Holy Spirit, which brings us to a whole slew of other problems and challenges in the life of a believer and the life of of a church. And I say all this because I'm just really excited about uh, this series because it, it's already been a huge blessing to me as I've been doing my studying, and um, it's really encouraged me in my walk with God. And I pray that it does the same uh, for all of you as well as we study Him in God's Word. So, who is the Holy Spirit and what does He do? A really good text to go to to answer these two questions is the text that we're looking at this morning, Titus chapter 3, uh, with a special emphasis on verses 3 through seven. If you haven't already, I encourage you to have this open. We're going to be studying it, uh, jumping back and forth a little bit, so please have it open in front of you. Um, Titus is one of the pastoral epistles uh, from Paul, uh, at, who is a church planter, to Titus. Um, that means that along with First and Second Timothy um, and Titus, these, these three letters provided for the early church and for us today a, a divinely inspired guide and an outline for how uh, God would want us to pastor and shepherd God's flock. 
And so as a young pastor myself, I cling to these verses, these letters, um, as incredibly precious. Um, these letters are densely packed with, with wisdom, but also very practical instruction that are really helpful for, for leading and caring for God's people and God's church. As you read through Titus in chapter 2, which is right before where we're at this morning, Paul spends time exhorting Titus to teach the church in Crete good and sound doctrine. And so to work hard as a pastor to make sure that the people in his flock have a right understanding about God. That's orthodoxy. Paul then shifts to talking about how this ought to lead the Cretans to living lives that, that look a certain way, that they, all, that, that they ought to be pastored um, into right practice as well. So that's orthopraxy, as well as having right understanding, orthodoxy. So these are the two things that Paul is encouraging Titus to teach in Crete. Now, in the first verses of chapter 3, Paul tells Titus to remind them to maintain their orthopraxy, to continue walking as Christians, and not just having the right knowledge or the right belief of a Christian. And that brings us right into our passage this morning. So let's read it together again. Titus chapter 3, verse 3 through 7. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So that word, the very first word in this passage, that for, is really important. So remember, anytime you see the word for, that's the same as the word because, and it's really a blinking alarm, and it lets us know that what's about to be communicated is directly, to connect, directly connected to what was just communicated previously. So when we see for, we should always back it up a little bit. And what we see before is Paul saying, remind them to have good orthopraxy, to, to walk as Christians. Let's just read it. Look at verses 1 and 2. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Paul says, remind them to do all these things, that, that is right and fitting behavior of those who follow Christ for, and then he goes on to explain why. So we're looking at the explanation this morning, and this is why. Verse 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. And Paul is essentially saying that Titus should remind the Christians to be Christians. It's a bit of a tongue twister. Because they used to not be Christians. That's his reasoning. That's what verse 3 is getting at. It's describing the life and the fruit of someone who doesn't know God. And it's a little bit harsh, but consider that Paul is identifying with this. He's not saying those grimy Christians, remind them to be civilized because they were savages beforehand. No, what he's saying is remind them to walk and live as Christians because 
we all know what life was like before we were Christians. It was very unchristian. Paul describes what this unchristian experience is that he too had before he met Jesus. So look at verse 3 again. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Now, this verse speaks of what Reformed theologians would call the, the total depravity of man. It is this idea of a comprehensive brokenness as, uh, of humans as a result of sin. So notice that Paul isn't saying uh, to, to remind them to walk and live as Christians as if they needed reminding like, like children who, who need to be reminded of manners, like keeping their elbows off the table while they're eating or holding doors for other people, saying please and thank you. He, what he's saying, he's, he's trying to remind them to walk and live as Christians because we were all living the complete and opposite way. Paul actually paints a picture of the three major areas that, that were broken. And this is really helpful. Before we were Christians, we had a broken relationship with God, we had a broken relationship with ourselves, and we had a broken relationship with others around us. You can see it in, these, in this one verse. Look at it again, the first part. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray. So this first chunk here, foolish in relation to what? disobedient toward who? Led astray from what? These first three descriptions help us understand that we are broken in our relationship with God. So we are foolish in our relationship to God's wisdom as we insist on our own way and lead on our own understanding. A, a verse that comes to mind is Proverbs 28, verse 26. This should be on your screen. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. So we were also disobedient, not just to our parents or teachers or the earthly authorities that are around us, but ultimately disobedient to the ultimate authority of God, who establishes all those other authorities over us. Look, look at the passage earlier in Titus. This is in Titus chapter 1, verse 16. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit, for any good work. And then we are led astray from walking in the way of God. Instead, we all walked in our own ways, in the ways that we thought were best and were right. Isaiah 53, verse 6 comes to mind. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, that's speaking of Jesus, the iniquity of us all. One of the major areas of our brokenness in our sin is seen in our relationship to God before we were Christians. So what that looked like is we were foolish, we were disobedient, we were led astray. Now Paul goes on to talk about a second major area of brokenness, not, not just brokenness in our relationship with God, but in our relationship with ourselves. Look at verse 3 again. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. So the question is, is whose passions and pleasures? And the answer is our own. Our relationship with ourselves is so broken that we are slaves. It's describing us as slaves to our own passions and our own desires. Slaves have no power. Slaves do not have any autonomy. We're, we're, we often use examples 
like addiction to alcohol or addiction to substances or addiction to pornography to understand this. But what Paul is talking about isn't a brokenness that only those who struggle with addiction can understand. He's talking about how we are broken as humans and we have a predisposition towards sinful behavior. Not if you're an addict, this is for everybody. It is like a constant tugging. It's a natural bent that we have. It's an uncontrollable desire. If you've ever experienced the temptation to sin and you gave in to that sin, this is what Paul is talking about. If you've ever felt selfish or self-seeking, you've put your needs first at the cost of others, if you've ever felt that, man, this is wrong, but, and I know that I shouldn't do this, but I want to do it. I'm going to do it anyways. Then you know what Paul is talking about here. That's what slavery to sin is. It's not just the addict who is enslaved to certain addictive behaviors. It's every human on some level experiencing slavery to our own sinful passions and desires. The lie that Satan tells us that many non-Christians believe, and perhaps even some Christians believe, is that we can actually stop sinning by our own power if we really wanted to. Like, if we really wanted to have a good day and not sin, we could do it, you know? We could have a good day. But that's like a prisoner in a jail cell saying, I could be free if I really wanted to. I could, I could just pop up on out of here, and I'm actually free. I'm, I'm here because I want to be here. That is a delusion. Sinners are enslaved like sinners are chained, no matter how much self-control or self-discipline we have. Paul sums up his own experience with this pretty well. In Romans chapter 7, verse 19, he says, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. So you can see that tension existing in Paul. Now, our brokenness is seen in our relationship with God, it's seen in our relationship with ourselves, and it's seen in our relationship with one another. Look again at verse 3, the last part. It says, for, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. In short, we don't just hurt God, we, we, we don't just hurt ourselves, but we hurt others as well. Paul poetically describes our experience. He says, passing our days in malice and envy. If you've ever had ill will in your heart towards someone, if you want someone to, to suffer, even just a little bit, maybe at, at least like, hey, I just want that person to have a bad day. If you've ever been jealous of someone, or, or uh, if, you've experienced, if you've experienced bitterness in your heart that, that they got something that you couldn't have. Maybe they accomplished a milestone that you haven't accomplished yet. Then you can identify with what Paul is saying here. And the fruit of this is that we aren't really nice to be around. Paul says that in our malice and envy, we're hated by others, and we continue on hating other people. And some of us know exactly what he's talking about here. Before we were Christians, we were jerks. We were openly bitter and jealous. We tore people down instead of building them up. No one wanted to be around us. Now, some of us might think, eh, I was a pretty likable person before I was a Christian. Maybe, maybe. I think God was very gracious with you. But do you think that if everyone around you heard your thoughts was able to see into your heart of hearts that you'd be as likable as you maybe think or thought that you were? Now, I don't mean to be condescending. I'm trying to expose that no one is an exception 
to this passage. And whether people hated you or not, I think that we can all agree that we've all experienced in one degree or another brokenness in our relationship with God, brokenness in our relationship with ourselves, and brokenness in our relationships with one another. This is the total depravity of man. It is our pre-existing condition as those who have been corrupted and broken by sin. And that corruption and that sinfulness is comprehensive to every aspect of who we were. Not a bad habit that we could kick or a lack of manners that we just need to learn. To use Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in, what, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So you see the consistency as Paul is talking about our pre-Christian selves. Now, why is this all important? Well, I, I think it's important to see and, and know these things because, one, it shows us why we need reminders to live and walk as Christians, and two, it shows us the work of the Holy Spirit. It does. So, number one, it shows us why we need reminders to be Christian. Remember, this is the reason why Paul is instructing Titus in verses 1 and 2 to remind the Christians to keep walking in the faith. And it's because no matter what your conversion story is, what your testimony of coming to faith in Christ Jesus is, this was all of our lives before we experienced salvation. We were broken comprehensively. As Paul put it, we were dead. We need reminders because that old existence, while it is not our reality currently, it's all that we ever knew and thus still has an ongoing impact in our lives today as Christians even though it's no longer who we are. And Paul himself, he's an apostle, he's a church planner, one of the forefathers of the faith. He wrote that verse in Romans 7:19 that I read earlier, which I'll read again. And, and keep in mind, this isn't his testimony from, he, from when he wasn't a Christian. This is him working out his faith in fear and trembling. So look at verses 18 and 19. This should be on your screens. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. One of the ways to understand this ongoing struggle is to look at elephants. Elephants are awesome, magnificent creatures. They are massive, if you've ever seen one in person. They're not born that full massive size. As infants, uh, elephants are a lot smaller. And for a long time, the way that, that humans would domesticate elephants is that they would put a metal cuff, a metal cuff around their ankle, which would then be attached to a chain. They would stake it in the ground, put it somewhere where it, you could tug on it and, and it wouldn't give. And so it would prevent the elephant from running too far away. Now, I'm not condoning this, I'm just using this as an illustration. Now, that, that chain would be strong enough to prevent that baby elephant from getting too far. But what happens over time is that the elephant learns its limitations. It knows how far it can go. It, it doesn't always just pull against the chain and test it. It actually knows where it can walk to. Even though as it gets older and larger, that chain is not going to do anything to stop that elephant from getting away. 
It gets to the point where a fully grown elephant would only need the cuff around its ankle and it wouldn't run off. It is so conditioned by its, by its experience of being restrained that it doesn't know that it actually has a lot more freedom than it actually does. Now, what Paul is describing in Titus 3.3 is exactly this. Those who are Christians are free. We're free. But sometimes we still feel the pinch of the cuff of sin around our ankle. That phantom pinch of our old existence reminding us of, of, of our, our once complete slavery. And so the reason why Paul is saying to Titus, remind them to live as Christians, is the same reason that we'd want to remind the elephant, hey, you're not chained anymore, buddy. You're free. You don't have to live like you are enslaved anymore. And to the people in Crete, you don't have to be foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing your days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Paul even says right after Romans 7, 18 and 19, where he talks about his own personal struggle of not doing what he wants to do and doing the thing that he doesn't want to do, at the beginning of chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, he says this, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Christian, I'm talking to you, you are free from the slavery of sin. You are. Maybe no one has ever told you that, but if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you believe that his death has brought you new life, if you've received that forgiveness of your sins, then sin has no power over you. Paul says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Like that metal cuff that has had a death grasp around our necks, which has kept us enslaved and chained, has been broken off. And we don't have to sin anymore. We don't have to live as though that chain is still tied around our necks. Now the work of pastoral ministry what Paul is instructing Titus in, which involves reminding the Christians to live as Christians, it is not the tedious work of making sure that everyone is doing what they ought to be doing. That is not ministry. The work that Titus is being encouraged to do is to remind the Christians of their freedom, to empower those early Christians to live in a new way, a way that they had never known before. Because here's what happens. We all tend to revert back to our old ways, do we not? When stress and anxiety are high, when fears set in, when uncertainty fills our minds and our hearts, we tend to revert back to what we've known, because what we've known is what is comfortable for us. Christian, if you revert back, if you backslide, if you forget to walk as a Christian ought to walk, don't be scared don't be discouraged. It's, it's as natural as anything as we live on this side of eternity. And there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But Christian, if you are in fact a Christian, remember that you don't have to live that way. You don't have to be enslaved any longer. Why? See, if we stop here, 
It's all a little bit vague. And if you're like me, you might be asking, what are like the mechanics of all of this? Like, it's nice that we are set free. It's nice that the chains of our slavery to sin have been broken. But those are all kind of vague concepts. They sound metaphorical. Did anything of actual substance happen to make it so that we don't have to live the existence that we've always known? And the answer is yes. So let's finish this passage and see. Look again with me, starting from the beginning of verse 3, since we've covered some ground. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There's a lot in these verses, but here is the gist. Something real and tangible happens to the Christian so that we no longer have to live the reality of verse 3. It is not vague. It is not metaphorical. Verses 4 through 7 show us the mechanics of our salvation with a specific emphasis on the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Look, most of us, we're going to get into our cars, we're going to turn that key, and we're going to drive off. And we're going to have zero understanding of the incredible things that are happening under the hood of that car to make the car go. Some of us, and this is a very personal example, some of us will say, hey, Google, it's time for bed. And all of our indoor lights will turn off, and our outdoor lights will dim to 10%, and the fish are going to be fed, and the house temperature gets to 58, and the weather for tomorrow is read to us out loud, and then white noise plays. This all happens, and most of us have no idea how much technological advancement and ingenuity has had to be orchestrated so that that could happen with just a few words. Similarly, some of the Christians in Crete, and some of us here today, will say, I'm saved, and we have no idea of the miraculous, supernatural things that, are, that have been at work, that have been done, that are currently at work, to make that a reality for us today. And so Paul, what he does in verses 4 through 7 is he pulls the curtain back for us a little bit. He, he lifts the lid, so to speak. He, he, he explains the cloud to us so we can understand some of these things. He, he shows us what it means that we are Christians and what has happened to us. And what we see as he pulls back the veil is a beautiful and busy orchestration of the triune God. All three persons of the Trinity are featured in our salvation. It all originates with God the Father. Look at the beginning of verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. God the Father initiates our salvation. This is beautiful and it is fitting. It is beautiful because it was not out of duty or obligation that spurred God on to save us. It wasn't because it was his responsibility or his job or that he had to do it. What was it? It was his goodness 
and his loving kindness and his mercy. God loves you. God loves you, not because he has to. He genuinely delights in you. Like a loving parent delights in their child for no other reason than just like, I I love you. Like sometimes I just hold my daughter. I'm like, I love you. I have no other reason. I just look at your face and I just want to squeeze you and I love you. Like that's how God, maybe not as weirdly as that, but how God delights in you. He loves you. He enjoys your presence. He, He wants to be with you. As we dive into some of the mechanics of salvation and look under that hood, we need to be reminded that what fuels the whole engine of salvation is the love that God has for you. Not y'all. God does love you all, the church, but I mean that God loves you, Keith. God loves you, Avi, Amelia, Nate, all of you, each individually. God loves you. And it's out of this love that God saves those of us who, the second part of verse 5 there, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. This is fitting considering our total depravity, our comprehensive brokenness. Remember, Paul calls us dead in our sin. Dead people cannot help themselves. People in need of salvation cannot save themselves. And so what happens to those of us who are Christians is simply that. Something happens to us, and that is done to us by God. And it's not a deal that's made. It's not an agreement that's signed. It's not like a handshake with God. It is someone who is dead, dead on the ground, who has no other hope or help being saved and brought back to life by God. That is salvation. Salvation is initiated wholly by God the Father, is motivated out of his goodness and his loving kindness toward us. And then we see what that salvation looks like. Look at verse 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So now we finally get to the Holy Spirit. And what we see is that the Holy Spirit is integral to the practical process of our salvation. Look look again, Paul says that the salvation that was initiated by God the Father, verse 5, is done, second part of 5, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is where the rubber meets the road. If we are the road and he is the rubber. Like God the Father initiates out of his loving kindness and mercy, and God the Holy Spirit is the acting agent that applies God's will. Let me give you a very quick overview to show you what I mean. And before I do that, here's a pop quiz. Where did we first see the Holy Spirit in the Bible? Yeah, it's in Genesis 1. I thought other people would have other guesses. Like it could be Pentecost in Acts, I think chapter 2, when, when all the apostles uh, and disciples received the Holy Spirit. And before, maybe it was before that, maybe it was when Jesus gets baptized. You see in Matthew 3, Jesus comes out of the water. We see the Spirit descending like a dove and resting on him. 
you're right, Keith. It is earlier than that. Genesis 1. Look on your screens. In the beginning, this is verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Holy Spirit is intimately present at creation, which gives us the sense that it's the Spirit who perhaps is the acting agent during all of creation. Fast forward to chapter 8 with me. If you remember, this is after God's wrath has been poured out on his creation through the flood as a response to all the wickedness and brokenness and sin in the world. And he saved Noah and his family and and a bunch of animals by having Noah build an ark. Now look at chapter 8, verse 1. It says, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him, and God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. Now, this is where it gets interesting. The word translated here as wind, ruach in the Hebrew, is the same word that's used in Genesis 1 for the Spirit of God. And so what's understood here is that God the Father remembers Noah after the flood and again initiates Noah's salvation and then it's the Holy Spirit that blows over the earth and subsides the waters. These aren't isolated incidents in Genesis. Again, we see something very similar in Exodus chapter 14, verses 21 and 22. As Israel, who is enslaved and being saved from Egypt by God, so we're seeing a theme here, We read this, verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind. That word is ruach, again, that's the same word. All night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their uh, their right hand and on their left. So we see is a pattern here where God's interaction with his creation is through the Holy Spirit. Even in creation of man, that word for spirit can be translated as wind, but also it can be translated as breath. So going back to Genesis 2, verse 7, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath or the spirit of life. And the man became a living creature. Remember Paul's words earlier from Romans 8 when he refers to the Holy Spirit as the spirit of life. What I'm trying to reveal here is that the Holy Spirit is not a secondary actor in God's grand story. The Holy Spirit is not a prop. God the Father initiates and says, let there be light, and the Spirit flips the switch. God the Father initiates and says, let there be life. And it's the Spirit who brings life to what is lifeless. God the Father initiates and says, move the waters. And it's the Spirit who blows and parts the waters. And in Titus 3, we see that it is God who initiates our salvation. We who were comprehensively corrupted, marred, and soiled by sin. And then our salvation happens by, look at verse 5, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit cleanses us from our sin. When we are saved, it's the Spirit who scrubs the wickedness 
from our old life before, from before God saved us. And not only that, but it's the Holy Spirit who renews and regenerates us, who with gentleness resets those fractures, those areas of brokenness in our lives, restoring us, making us more holy as we actively walk in step with Him. That's Galatians 5. It's fitting that the Spirit is also referred to in Scripture as wind or as breath, because one of the best ways to understand the Spirit is actually, actually to see His effects. Because you don't see wind, but you can see when the wind blows leaves or it knocks down trees. That's why this passage is so important for helping us understand the Spirit. It shows us His work in us. So anytime we're inclined to do something that is godly, as opposed to fulfilling the, the, the passions and the desires of our flesh in which we once walked, remember verse 3, we're experiencing the work of the Spirit in us. Anytime we feel, we feel the pull to read God's word or to spend time in prayer with God, like, that ain't you. <laughs> Romans 11 says, no one seeks after God. That is the work of the Holy Spirit in you. Anytime we do read God's word, we hear God's word being preached, and his word is understood, and it is received, and it affects us, and we respond to it. That is not the preacher being eloquent or persuasive. That's not you being on your A-game and focused and tuned in. That is the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. That is regeneration. That is renewal. It's ironic that the person of the Trinity, which we probably know the least about, is the one that we interact with the most. <laughs> Look again at verse 5 and 6. This is Paul speaking about the Holy Spirit. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. See, I'm confident that we interact the most with the Holy Spirit because that Spirit has been generously applied to us. It has been richly poured out onto us. Not like a little sprinkling of a little pixie dust that can blow away. Like, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? That is not my rhetorical question. That is a Bible verse. That is 1 Corinthians 3.16. God is present with us in a way, God the Spirit is present with us in a way that God the Father and God the Son are not. When God says in Joshua 1.5 that he'll never leave us or forsake us, that promise is fulfilled by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us permanently right here, right now. When the psalmist in Psalm 46.1 says God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble that is perfectly fulfilled and it is confirmed by Jesus who says in John 14 15 that he would send us a helper the Holy Spirit so I, this is my prayer week I've been praying that we would be able to see and appreciate the effects of the Spirit in our lives and that we'd understand all that is fulfilled in God's Word by the Spirit coming and dwelling in us we see this passage, in this passage, that God the Father is the initiator, and what he does is out of love for us. 
We see God the Spirit is applied generously to us. He dwells in us. He washes us clean from our sin. He purifies us. He regenerates us. He renews us. But what of God the Son, Jesus? What does he do? Is there anything left to do? That sounds like a pretty comprehensive list. Look again at verse 6. Jesus' role is humble, but it is crucial. Verse 6, whom he, that's God the Father, poured out on us richly, that's the Spirit, through Jesus Christ, our Savior. The Father initiates, the Spirit engages, but the Son makes that salvation possible. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Communion helps us remember not only Jesus' death, but what Jesus accomplished with it. He is the sacrificial lamb that died in our place, who purchased with his life the ability for us to be washed clean. Without Jesus' death, we are still dead. We'd still be foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. No indwelling spirit without Jesus, no washing and cleansing without Jesus, no regeneration without Jesus, no renewal without Jesus, no communion with God without Jesus. B.B. Warfield says this about the Holy Spirit. He is the divine applier of the salvific benefits that Jesus achieved for his people. In other words, Jesus pays for the scrub brush, and the Holy Spirit does the scrubbing. Jesus purchases our righteousness, and it's the Spirit who clothes us with it. Jesus calls us friends and makes us heirs with him. And it's the Spirit who is the eternal seal who marks us as members of God's royal family. Jesus reconciles us in our broken relationship with God, in the broken relationship with ourselves, in the broken relationship with one another. And it's the Spirit who dwells in us who actively and supernaturally makes that reconciliation a reality on all three of those levels. And so I want to encourage you, if, if you've never understood what it means to be saved by God like this, and you want this, I encourage you to invite the Spirit into your heart, to receive the Spirit and let Him bring you to life. And I'm going to be in the back. I'd love to chat with you, pray with you. If that's something you want to decide or at least talk about today. If you are a Christian, my exhortation to you is to remember that you are a Christian. The same exhortation that Timothy was giving to Titus to give to the Christians. Remember what God has done to save you. How he has been the one to initiate from a place of love to save you who were comprehensively corrupted by sin, totally depraved, dead in the ground. And that the Holy Spirit has brought you back to life. 
is, is washing you and regenerating you, perhaps at a slower rate than you would like, but He is, He is renewing you. And this is all made possible by the work of Jesus on the cross. And so as you take communion, remember these things. Acknowledge the Trinity, all three of them, and all three of their work in your salvation, and thank God for what He has done to make you His own. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you share your heart and knowledge of who you are with us. Thank you that we can read your word and know you better. God, thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. God, we thank you that you are so intimately close to us in your spirit, which dwells in us. God, I pray that this reality would help shape the way that we walk through life, Lord. Knowing that you are not a million miles away, that you don't just hear our prayers, but that you direct our steps. And so help us, as Paul says in Galatians 5, to walk in step with you. And that is through your spirit that dwells in us. God, thank you for how you have cleansed us, how you have washed us. God, we confess that we often see verse 3 and all the things of our old life and think, man, we're still there. Lord, thank you for your mercy and your grace, and we thank you that one day we will be completely removed from our old lives, Lord. Even now as it crouches at our elbow, it's so close of an existence, Lord, as we live in this time um, of already but not yet. But Father, I pray that you uh, God would help us to endure and to look forward with hope to a day when we will be completely reconciled, Lord, completely reconciled with you in relationship with you, uh, completely reconciled in our relationship with ourselves, completely reconciled in the relationship with our brothers and our sisters, Lord. And so we look forward to that day and help us, Lord, continue to take steps and walk as we are truly free, as we are, God. Lord, thank you for what you've done to make this possible Lord, thank you for the people who are, he, who are here. Thank you for this new year, God. Thank you for all the things that you've done in this past year and all the things you're going to do in this next year, Lord. We submit it to you. We pray that you would take rule and reign in our church, in our lives. We love you, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.